Hello everyone and welcome to a global perspective on European politics. Today our topic is the relationship between the European Union and Mongolia. It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Chalin Halbersma and Alessandra Tamponi. Uh, Professor Chalin Halbersma is a director uh, international of the Center for East Asian Studies, Groningen, and Professor of East Asian Studies with focus on modern-day Mongolia. He is also Director of Globalization Studies, Groningen. Professor Halbusma spent many years working in China and Mongolia, and he was the first Dutch diplomat in Mongolia based in Ulaanbaatar for the Dutch Embassy in Beijing. And Alessandra Tamponi completed master's degree for international relations and East Asian studies at the University of Groningen, where her research mainly uh, focused on Northeast Asia. Her main research interests are focused on Northeast Asian regionalism, environmental cooperation, digitalization, and thematic connected to ethnic groups. Alessandra Tamponi also recently completed a placement at the European Institute for Asian Studies, a think tank based in Brussels, during the placement, uh, Ms. Tamponi conducted research on contemporary Mongolia, resulting in three block contributions. Uh, Charling, Alessandra, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today. And I think today topic Mongolia is also very relevant for our co-organizer, Tom, because he also lived in Mongolia in 2018. He did uh, his internship at uh, Transparency International in the capital city Ulaanbaatar for three months. And Tom, you were also part of the uh, Mongolian TV series, I, uh, uh, I heard. So we will hear about this uh, later in our discussion. It is also a very interesting and remarkable year because uh, January 2022 marks the 30th anniversary of the adoption of Democratic Constitution of Mongolia. Therefore, it's also a very relevant and a remarkable month for our podcast uh, discussion as well. Okay, uh, I think I want to give the floor to Tom for the first question. Yes, thank you very much uh, for the introduction. Uh, I think for the first question, I would like to ask this to uh, Chalin, uh, given your long work experience uh, in the region. I think it makes sense to have some background information about Mongolia first, right? Because it's a country that's not that well known by many in the West, and I think most people have associations with Genghis Khan and with the Mongolian steppe, and I think that's pretty much where people's thoughts on Mongolia end. So, uh, more specifically, what kind of country is Mongolia strategically? Uh, what are its neighbors and how does Mongolia contribute to the international system? Um, does it export natural resources? Does it have a big army? Yeah, what's up with, uh, with Mongolia? Well, thank you. And, and first of all, thanks for having me. So, Mongolia, I think all of us has heard of that, but more in the terms that you described them as... Uh, as this historic country with Genghis Khan founding the largest empire the world has ever been. But uh, today's Mongolia is uh, sandwiched between two big powers, China on its south and Russia to its north. Two countries that uh, Mongolia has either dominated in the past, eh, and then we talk again about the Mongol period and Genghis Khan, or two countries that have dominated Mongolia in more recent history, China, dominating Mongolia as a province then called Outer Mongolia, and Russia dominating Mongolia rather in the 20th century, when Mongolia remained an independent state, but was very much uh, part of the, the Soviet bloc. But as of the 1990s, Mongolia has 
survived that 20th century where either states ended up as republics in the Soviet Union or provinces in China as an independent country. And it is, interestingly, exactly to this very day today, 30 years ago, that Mongolia adopted a constitution in 1992 to change its socialist communist system radically to a multi-party system with elections, multi-party, a market economy, free press, and radically changed its socialist system to a state that has in fact a lot in common with the EU in terms of norms, values, and democracy. So quite an interesting and fascinating place that has proven itself to be very flexible and adaptable with many changes, very active in the international domain. And Mongolia has a, also at that constitution resulting in a, a foreign policy concept that of course first looks to its two neighbors, China and Russia, to have balanced and good relations with those two uh, countries. And then to be an active player in the international domain with third neighbors, other states that it engages with, with peacekeeping in the international order, and also remarkable relations with countries like North Korea that are not so much part of that Western system, so to speak. So a fascinating place that uh, is far in our imagination almost to speak, but actually very real and very active in the international order. Great. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Charling, for this uh, background information. And it's also interesting to hear about the uh, Mongolian relationship uh, with North Korea, because both countries are not, uh, let's say, uh, at least Mongolia is not uh, well known in the West, as uh, Tom said, and North Korea has a particular uh, image uh, in the global arena. Could you please maybe reflect on the relationship between Mongolia and North Korea? What, what kind of relationship they have? Well, this is a relationship that started very early on. I believe that North Korea was the second country to recognize the independence of Mongolia after Russia or the Soviet Union. And from the late 1940s, Mongolia has uh, established diplomatic relations with North Korea. So it's really part of that socialist, communist heritage that Mongolia has. But also a relationship that carries meaning even today because of the 1990s when Mongolia changed its system and found new allies, so to speak, and, and established its relations with South Korea, it continued to have also these relations with North Korea. And even today, when there are talks between North Korea and other states in the region, they sometimes opt for Mongolia to host these talks. So, for instance, Mongolia has hosted talks between North Korea and Japan on other security issues and particularly people who have been abducted by North Korea from Japan and who were negotiated to return to Japan. So in that sense, Mongolia continues to, to, well, use that relationship, that unique relationship that it maintains with North Korea to be part of wider discussions. And even when the discussions between the United States and North Korea took place under the Trump administration, uh, Mongolia actively tried to put itself forward as a candidate to host these discussions and negotiations. I guess uh, Mongolia is also felt this uh, Trump administration's uh, trade war with China as well uh, when it comes to Mongolia, considering it has also a strong relationship, uh, trade and economic relationship with uh, China as well. Uh, was it also the case, uh, Mongolia kind of a, a bit under the negative uh, 
let's say, scope of the Trump administration, would you say? Uh, or was just a diplomatic, uh, uh, let's say, balanced country trying to find a middle ground and bridge between great powers and uh, North Korea? Well, yes, here we, we touch upon both economics as well as foreign policy of Mongolia. The first priority in Mongolia's uh, foreign policy is to have balanced relations with both neighbors, Russia and China. Hmm. And then to have developed relations with third neighbors. Actually a term coined by the United States when they, or rather Jim Baker, early in the 1990s visited Mongolia. He proclaimed, we, the United States, are your third neighbor. And Mongolia has very pragmatically, practically played off the interest vis-a-vis these entities, Russia, China, United States, without choosing really sides, without favoring one over the other, but certainly playing them off against each other for its own economic and political benefit. Okay, that's great to know. I think uh, we can move from a little bit history to the recent events, uh, elections in Mongolia, and also the future uh, perspective as well, uh, how we see. So uh, my question is uh, for the Alessandra, and later on it will be great to hear also reflections from uh, Charling as well. How are the relations, uh, Charling already mentioned, Uh, with uh, Russia and China, because uh, it's they are the Mongolia's only neighbors. Uh, my specific uh, question is, as you know, in 2021, uh, there was uh, presidential elections in Mongolia. And uh, what is the kind of, it is not anymore new, but uh, let's call it so-called new administration. Uh, it is a uh, future foreign policy look like. Uh, as Charling said, uh, Mongolia has always observed a balanced and pragmatic foreign policy. And has this policy uh, changed since the last presidential elections? Uh, does the current administration follow a balanced foreign policy or do we see a new administration heading more into the Russian direction or China or US or even European Union direction? So how, how do you evaluate the future foreign policy of Uh, Mongolia and current administration. Um, hello, and thanks for having me to begin with. From uh, uh, from the evidence that I was able to collect uh, during my internship and throughout my experience with Mongolia, I believe that the country uh, will continue to try to have like a very balanced relations uh, with its neighbors. Uh, of course, China, it's its main uh, trade partners because Mongolia is a country uh, whose exports uh, mostly rely on its mining products uh, and China is the main directions of those raw materials. And uh, I don't think that that is going to change. Uh, there is, of course, the role that Mongolia uh, is going to have in the BRI. Right now, the country uh, is like uh, has signed uh, 32 projects, which will develop the uh, Mongolia-Russia-China uh, trade route. But uh, from the elections uh, and uh, from the goals expressed uh, in uh, Vision 2050 and uh, more recently after the uh, 30-party Congress uh, in Mongolia that just uh, held right now and uh, during December, uh, I believe that the country will try to maintain a balanced relations uh, between uh, itself, China, Russia, third neighbors, uh, and do everything that it can in order to 
bust its development. And from the Congress and also from Vision 2050, uh, it is clear that the main goal of the country is to uh, revitalize its economy. However, there are also evidence that it will try to diversify its economy and to rely less on uh, solely the mining sector or at least uh, to diversify uh, what in the mining sector can be, uh, be interpreted as valuable in the future. Right now, I believe that a very important aspect that should be kept in uh, under like under observation is the fact that uh, the majority of Mongolian exports uh, are uh, constituted by baking coal, but uh, with the uh, increasing policies of uh, decarbonization that are going through in Mongolia, in other Northeast Asian countries, in European countries, and in um, in a more subtle way in Russia too, because the region of Sakhalin is being treated as a, some sort of um, experimental region for decarbonization policies. I believe that it will be important to keep uh, uh, to keep under observation uh, the importance that copper is going to play in the future of Mongolian or Mongolian trades because of uh, of the role that it has in boosting renewable energies, for example, for the construction of solar panels, which are going to play an important part in the development of energetic diversification in the region of the Gobi, uh, of the Gobi Desert, not only the region of the Gobi Desert of Mongolia, but also the region of the Gobi Desert. China. Great. I see here uh, Tom's uh, hand. Uh, thank you very much, Alexander. Tom, go ahead with the follow-up question. Uh. Yes, I think when comparing Mongolia with uh, its two big neighbors, it's very important to take into account the nature of its political system because it's fairly democratic, which is what might surprise a lot of people. It surprised me when I was there, um, right? given uh, the path of independence of post-Soviet country, post-communist countries. Uh, right, Russia very much declined in uh, democratic uh, terms. China has never really been democratic, right? Um, so I think that's also very unique about Mongolia. Um, and Alessandra, maybe you could um, elaborate a bit on this nature of uh, Mongolia's democracy and why, why is it still democratic if both its neighbors are so declining and there must be pressure there. Um, I don't... I don't think that there is really the pressure to turn Mongolia in a non-democratic country because traditionally China has a uh, non-intervention uh, policy when it comes to countries' internal affairs. And uh, so I think that Mongolian political system is not going to be a problem neither for Russia nor for China as long as the economic relations uh, relationship are, uh, as long as the economic relationship are still good. And I believe that a closing closing relationship between uh, Mongolia and the European Union countries, for example, or India, which is considered a strategic partners as well, will help Mongolia uh, to continue towards this path as a balancing um, figure in uh, in the region. Um, the leading partner right, right now in Mongolia is the MPP, uh, which is a, um, how to say, it is the inheritance that has been left by the time that uh, Mongolia was part of the USRR. It is very focused in maintaining uh, the country's independence and improving its relevance in the international, in the international fields. And I think that the fact that the country is democratic uh, represents an okay. Uh, it represents a 
factor that it's going to boost also its strategic importance because it's a democratic country that has good relationship with China, that has warm relationship with North Korea, which is unusual, and that can play uh, a balancing role between uh, the European Union countries and the non-democratic Asian countries, but also between the Northeast Asian countries and their Central Asian neighbors. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Alessandra, for this uh, uh, overview as well. And uh, speaking on democracy and relationship with the democratic countries, maybe I can uh, ask uh, Charling, uh, because you have also, uh, you lived and you have uh, also not academic, but also political uh, experience uh, with the Mongolian government uh, as you were uh, representing Dutch government in uh, uh, Mongolia. So uh, how's the relationship between the European Union uh, and the Mongolia, more specifically, uh, uh, the uh, which countries within the EU, uh, for example, the Netherlands, uh, involvement in Mongolia, interest in Mongolia? How would you reflect on uh, the EU-Mongolian relationship, uh, more specifically when it comes to the Dutch interest in Mongolia? Well, I, th- I think Tom made a, a great point to uh, point out that Mongolia has this unique system, democratic system, free press, elections, that seems to function pretty well. And Mongolia has realized that this is also a tremendous asset when it engages with the EU or with the United States or with countries that have similar system. So when discussions or when negotiations between Mongolia and these third neighbors, so to speak, take place, often the shared values and norms are being stressed. And that is certainly the case when it engages with EU or with the United States. Constantly, it is stressed that Mongolia has this open system of free press and democracy. It's something that's also stressed in discussions when uh, uh, the bilateral relation between the Netherlands and Mongolia is being highlighted. And uh, you will be surprised that uh, until very recently, the Netherlands uh, used to be the second largest investor in Mongolia. This is uh, China, of course, first. That is China-Mongolia relation in economic terms. We should also touch upon perhaps later in this discussion. But the Netherlands stood out because of its tax system. Many of the mining entities that operated in Mongolia were actually registered in the Netherlands, like IKEA is, or the Rolling Stones, or Starbucks is, because the Netherlands had signed a treaty on avoidance of dual taxation with Mongolia. And under that treaty, a number of large mining entities registered in the Netherlands in order to operate in Mongolia. So that's not Dutch investments, but more on paper Dutch investments. So that was one extraordinary part of that relationship. Secondly, Netherlands brought Mongolia into the EBRD, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, where Mongolia shares a constituency with the Netherlands. There's also many other more soft power relations between um, uh, the Netherlands and Mongolia. The Przewalski horses had these wild horses, that were extinct in Mongolia, were brought back from the Netherlands, from Netherlands zoos, being reintroduced. That's certainly something that also has been highlighted in every discussion, how that uh, relation was taking shape also in terms of cultural or environmental terms. And that actually resulted in a very large cooperation between the Netherlands and Mongolia in environment. So the Netherlands used to be the largest sponsor of Mongolia for its environmental program at, to combat desertification, to combat climate change in Mongolia, until Mongolia became a middle-income country and 
this program was phased out. So there are remarkable relations between the Netherlands and Mongolia. But as in Mongolia's relations with the EU, often these shared values, these shared norms of multi-party system, of uh, free press, are being stressed, underlined, and really capitalized upon by Mongolia. Uh, it's very interesting to know also this uh, Dutch aspect as well. And uh, thank you also highlighting uh, this. Uh, I always read Dutch uh, tax haven. It's called Netherlands is a tax haven for the companies. Because recently, uh, it's not related to Mongolia, but also in Central Asia, uh, when I read, uh, Netherlands is also one of the biggest investors in Kazakhstan as well. Uh, which I'm curious whether it is uh, the Dutch invest in Kazakhstan or Mongolia, as you said, or whether the companies again registered in the Netherlands and they are, uh, uh, let's say, using this tax advantage and uh, exploring uh, Mongolian mineral resources as well. But speaking on, since you also mentioned China and the European Union and the Netherlands as well, because Mongolia is also is also kind of one of the routes for the one belt, one road uh, for the China to reach uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, so is there a kind of uh, cooperation between the uh, European Union and the China in Mongolia, or is it kind of a bit more competition and a kind of avoidance uh, each other in the Mongolian geopolitical sphere for dominating these mineral resources? As you said, uh, Mongolia is very rich in terms of mineral resources and it's Uh, strategic location as well is very important. So how does this uh, EU-China uh, friendly competition work in uh, uh, Mongolian uh, affairs? Alessandra, is this something you would like to reflect on or, or shall I start? What what would you like? Um, I think there, there is something that I would like to, there is something that I would like to say in this regard. And for now, it seems that uh, there like approach of uh, European Union towards China's approach to Mongolia, it seems to be like avoidance. However, Mongolia is the destination of uh, a lot of, uh, of EU funded projects. However, these projects are funded through like, for example, uh, Asian Bank, uh, the uh, European Bank of Reconstruction and Development or uh, the IED. Uh, I, I believe that the, the plan the EU has uh, to uh, physically connect towards Mongolia for trade, uh, it's still a little bit sub, uh, subtle. Uh, there are other projects, however, that I uh, believe uh, uh, are uh, of importance right now. And one of the most important is one that they recently concluded, which was the European Switch Asia programs, uh, which uh, highlights the role that the European Union uh, could play uh, in uh, the development, in the uh, rural and the regional development uh, uh, in Mongolia, apart from the development in Alambatar. The project uh, was a uh, for a kickstart project uh, for circular economy in Mongolia, and uh, it focused on how to use uh, material constructor uh, for the second time or how to recycle material constructor and I think that this is going to be important in light of the uh, of the goals that, uh, that the country has uh, to enrich its uh, middle class uh, and a middle class that mainly works for small and uh, medium enterprises uh, which are separated from the solely uh, mining uh, Uh, mining sector. Uh, if 
in order to have like in the future uh, a still growing uh, relationship with the country, I believe uh, it is important to focus on those projects uh, that align uh, also with the with the goals uh, uh, with the goals of the government uh, and uh, be a player rather than uh, rather than uh, competing with China over the mining opportunities that the country has. Also consider what can the contribution of the European Union be in the willingness of Mongolia to diversify its economy and to not rely so much just on its mining sector. Thank you very much uh, for this. And uh, would you also like uh, Charling reflect on it? Uh, or uh, Tom, do you have any uh, follow-up questions uh, for this? Because I see you are also... Well, maybe if I... Yeah, May add to what Alessandra said, the reality is, of course, that Mongolia borders on China on this vast economy and power in East Asia, and that all its mining is very much focused on China. And we see that uh, most of its uh, raw materials are exported to China, be it coking coal or be it copper. Some more strategic elements like the rare earth minerals that are also mined in Mongolia, may go to other countries and where they are more strategically deployed. But the reality is Mongolia borders on this vast economy of China, and that's where its first attention is, not only in its foreign policy concept, but also economically. Okay, finally we can move the discussion to Tom. Tom, it's also very uh, uh, interesting uh, for you, I guess, because you spend uh, quite a remarkable of time in uh, Mongolia. Uh, when did you actually uh, live in Mongolia and how long and what was your experience living there? Because uh, in the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that you were also part of the local uh, soap in the local TV, Mongolian TV. Can you tell us a bit your experience and uh, this uh, soap program? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I lived in Mongolia from March 2018 until uh, May 2018. I was there for an internship uh, during my master's program. Um, so my master was international security uh, in Groningen. Um, and I had to find an internship, uh, which was quite a hassle. Uh, but to be honest, luckily, I was I was very lucky with uh, Charling Halbertsma because he helped me out to, uh, to get this internship. Um, so what I did, um, I worked at an NGO, so a non-governmental organization called uh, Transparency International, uh, which is the leading uh, NGO that fights corruption in the world, right? So how they work, they have um, their headquarters are in Berlin. They have several chapters all over the world because corruption is a local problem, right? So it has to be solved with um, um, with local staff and not all corruption problems are equal everywhere, right? So it has to be dealt with locally. So uh, Mongolia has its own chapter. That is uh, basically where I worked. So what I did, um, I wrote a few articles for the website, um, mainly comparing the financing of Western political parties to Mongolian political parties, because that's very significant of Mongolian corruption. It's very present in the political party system. That was the main feature of uh, corruption in Mongolia. Um, yeah, spent there three months. It's a very, very interesting country. Um, I made great friends there as well. What's, what's very interesting is that it's kind of like a black box. You feel kind of closed off from the rest of the world. It's like when you go traveling there, you're on the great step and you you look around you and you realize that like 300 kilometers or something around you, there's nothing, right? Just nothing, just step. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy experience. 
And uh, how did you end up uh, from Transparency International uh, to a local TV? Like what kind of uh, connection did you have that? Or did they just offer you because you were, I don't know, a Western uh, blonde guy ended up in the streets? Yeah, that last part was a was a big part of it, I guess. Um, it's it's weird for them to have a lot of work. There, there are expats there, but um, they're mostly working for embassies and stuff. So, um, yeah, it's it's a funny story. I was sitting in a cafe, actually, in one of the expat cafes, um, and two guys came in and they asked the owner of the of the cafe if he wanted to play in their soap series. And he said no. And then they looked at me and I was sitting there with a, I had a curly mustache back then, a handlebar mustache, handlebar mustache. And they asked me like, hey, do you want to uh, play in a soap series? And I was like, well, why not? Because besides my internship, I don't have that much, that much to do. And, you know, it's it's a big step, I think, from going full study to just an internship. It's you work from nine to five and then you have nothing, right? So, um, it's it's interesting. And what kind of uh, what kind of series was it? It was called Girls. Yeah. Um, it's it's a drama series of, I think it was four girls, five girls that live in an apartment together with an elderly lady, and they have crazy adventures together. So what I did, I played Mike. Uh, I got catfished by a Mongolian girl. So I thought I was talking with a Mongolian, beautiful Mongolian girl on Facebook, but it turned out to be this elderly lady. So I said, hey, I'm going to come visit you, this pretty girl. Then it turned out it was the elderly lady. Okay, so it was kind of a funny uh, yeah. soap for the local TV. Well, great. I even got paid for it, um, 175 years, even though it was a hassle to actually get the payment. But uh, yeah, but, but in the end, it was a successful to yeah. to stuff. But uh, yeah, I'd like to add to that because what what is actually more funny for me in the the whole part in Mongolia was a bit of a joke because I was telling my friends like, oh, I'm playing in a soap series, whatever. Um, but then when I got back home. For me, that was, the experience was already over, right? And um, but some of my friends told their other friends, and then um, um, a journalist from Dagblad van het Noorden, Groningen's mm-hmm. uh, newspaper, mm-hmm. they wanted to interview me about this, so I was like, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll talk about it. So then um, they published it online, and after that, because there was no news whatsoever, um, all these talk shows wanted to have me on, so I got also got on live TV in the Netherlands. Wow. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't a joke to you me. You were anymore. a superstar uh, out of sudden from uh, international relations to the media sector. Yeah, so for two days I went viral. And uh-huh. that which, was which TV channels or programs in the it Netherlands? Was, um, M with Marguerite van der Linde. Yeah. Do you know? Not that much. It's like eight o'clock. Okay. It's, it's like, it was like one of the primetime things. And then I was really nervous because I thought um, if I... It was, it was interesting weird. for the Dutch public probably to know your experience in uh, Mongolia. Yeah, because... And what type of country or... Yeah, because as we said at the beginning, everyone thinks of Genghis Khan, that's it, right? So they're yeah. like, what's life there? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's really interesting because these days, uh, of course, uh, Central Asian countries uh, next to Mongolia, they are also right now on, uh, on a lot of the Dutch TV and we can observe that it's not really well known in uh, in the Dutch media or uh, among the Dutch uh, uh, political uh, circle. So indeed there is a need for uh, expertise uh, for the non-Western countries, especially in uh, Central Asia, East Asia, uh, overall uh, South Caucasus uh, included. Well, this was very interesting. Thank you very much all uh, for listening to us and please follow our next episodes uh, on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts and 
on your favorite podcast app. Stay tuned, stay healthy, bye.